Hi, and welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. The notion of an enormously expensive appraisal of collections was chilling to museums for sure. And we finally convinced the FASB staff that it was simply an impossibility. That was James H. Duff, who was director of the Brandywine River Museum of Art in Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania, beginning in 1973, and also executive director of the museum's parent organization, the Brandywine Conservancy, from 1976 until his retirement at the end of 2011. He's published widely and organized a variety of exhibitions, including An American Vision, Three Generations of Wyeth Art, which traveled to nine museums in five countries, beginning in what was then the Soviet Union. He writes and lectures on American art history, especially as it relates to the Brandywine Valley. He was for nine years a trustee and is a past president of the Association of Art Museum Directors, and was chairman of its committee that prepared the 2001 edition of Art Museum Standards, Professional Practices in Art Museums. He was a presidential appointee to the Federal National Museum Services Board for nine years, a trustee of the American Alliance of Museums, and is a past president of the Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums, and in 1992 received that organization's Catherine Coffey Award. The incumbent director at Brandywine is named the James H. Duff Director, a unique honor in a field that normally forgets the last office occupant upon the appointment of her or his successor. He lives in Belfast, Maine, with his wife, Sally. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for joining the podcast. Max, your invitation was a delightful call from the past. It brought back to my mind many projects we worked on jointly for the AMD and the AAM. Thank you for the invitation. You are so welcome and hardly the past. You were very much in the present and certainly in my mind because in the news of late has been a series of art sales by museums and announcements of pending sales. And there is simply no one in the museum field better equipped than you to help put the relevant issues into context because you chaired the museum director's committee that established the most comprehensive professional practices, including those related to what we call deaccessioning. Could we start by your sharing the standard definition of what we mean by deaccessioning and what makes it different from just selling art? Max, you praise me over much. <laughs> I'm certain that many others, including you, are keeping careful track of this issue. Well, to be clear, I did chair the committee that during a two-year period from 1999 into 2001, re-examined the then existing professional practices. Our task was to bring up to date, as we saw it, standards previously established in the Association of Art Museum Directors publication, Professional Practices in Art Museums. And we were also to establish, as you said, Max, more comprehensive standards for deaccessioning and disposal from collections. Those extended standards were considerations that appeared in an appendix to the larger document, Professional Practices. Those professional practices were, a decade later, restated in the AMD's 2011 edition of Professional Standards. In fact, you know, the re-examination by the AMD of its promulgated professional standards has taken place every decade for five decades. Mm -hmm. I was a fortunate and always a fascinated participant in four of those efforts, beginning with the 1981 edition of the publication. Uh, but to go to your question, Max, 
Deaccessioning is the removal of an object from a museum's collection. It's that simple. It results in removing the object's records from the collection files. And I think it should be said that it's possible to deaccession a work of art without taking a second action, such as selling that work of art. But as we know well, selling is often assumed to be part of the deaccessioning process. It is not. That is, a work may be resident in a museum for a long time without its disposal. And disposal is the professional term that covers selling or exchanging a work. It's the disposal that actually removes it from the premises, so to speak. I'd like to mention just for the historical record, by the way, if you don't mind, Max, that in Mm -hmm. 1980 or 81, the Committee on Professional Practices considered not using any longer the word deaccession because of its kind of built-in linguistical absurdity. Uh, But Mm -hmm. we finally concluded that it was too commonly in use to try to wipe it from our language. I remember we considered coining decession as an alternative word, but the term deaccession dates to at least 1972 when it was used by John Kennedy in the New York Times. Well, and a mention in the New York Times codifies something as in the, the book of hours. But Jim, your point about accessioning and deaccessioning is important, which is to say, when museums purchase a work of art, that doesn't mean they've accessioned it necessarily. It could be part of their study collection. It could simply be property that they're holding onto and might eventually sell with its never being accessioned into the collection. Excellent point, Max. There are some museums that actually happily accept donations of works of art with the intention of holding them for a period of time that the Internal Revenue Service will recognize as having cured the donor's requirement for sitting on it and receiving a charitable deduction. And then the museum is free to sell it, none of which passes through accession records. That's all very true. Jim, can you walk us through the pre-pandemic standards and how those differ from the standards of the American Alliance of Museums? Well, I'll try. But first, Max, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to 1946. And that's because last night I found a quotation in my files from the then president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who was talking about the public spirit behind museums. He admonished that we do the following. Fix with sureness the philosophic and economic principles underlying all such institutions. Since rapidly changing social and economic conditions are certain to bring about in the future, a great need for understanding and continued study of those principles. So Max, it seems some things do not change we will always have a need to examine our basic and our long-term commitments so that we can live up to them. Maybe that's a good bookend for us, 1946. Mm -hmm. To say where museums were pre-pandemic and after 1946, it seems best to read from the most recent, the 2011 edition of Professional Practices. I have it here Mm -hmm. and let me do that. Funds received from the disposal of a deaccessioned work shall not be used for operations or capital expenses. 
such funds, including any earnings and appreciation thereon, may be used only for the acquisition of works of art in a manner consistent with the museum's policy on the use of restricted acquisition funds. In order to account properly for their use, the AAMD recommends that such funds, including any earnings and appreciation, be tracked separately from other acquisition funds. That statement is straightforward and continues the standard set decades before and reiterated by the AAMD over decades. Now there's another issue here, I think. The professional practices document applies to the operation of museums as institutions, but with it comes a code of ethics for art museum directors, that is as individuals, as individual directors. The applicable paragraph in the Code of Ethics reads, in accordance with the AMD's policy on deaccessioning and disposal, the director must not dispose of accessioned works of art in order to provide funds for purposes other than acquisition of works of art for the collection. It seems that with the current resolution of the AMD, a provision of the Code of Ethics is also set aside. Jim, how do those standards differ from the standards of the American Alliance of Museums, of AAM? Well, the American Alliance of Museums, as you know, Max, is comprised of museums and museum workers from all types of museums. That is historical, scientific, art, and more. It has other constituents beyond art museums. For some types of collections, there are very different issues related to the use of funds from disposals. So as a result, the AAM's code of ethics has long permitted funds from deaccessioning and disposal to be used according to the standards of the professional associations that represent those individual types of museums. Thus the AAM concluded that those funds could be used for and I think the AM may have coined this phrase, direct care of collections, in addition to the replenishment of collections, which is, of course, what the AMD requires, or did require. A lot of this bears on a fact that the press is very excited about all the time, and that is that most art in major museums, as much as 95% of the collection, is in storage at any given time. Help everybody understand why that is okay. It is okay, and it drives me crazy when <laughs> representatives of the media make that claim, and it has driven me a little while when some trustees, in my case rarely, but some trustees of museums have made the same argument that what is not seen should be sold. That at least is the implication. Well, there are several reasons why this is, as you say, okay. The first coming to mind is that in most art museums, a very large portion of the collection is works on paper. And to preserve them, they must not be continuously on exhibition, out in the light. Secondly, the totality of a collection is always available for research and publications. It remains important to scholars, students, and critics even if it's not on display. Next, I could say that a large collection enables rotation of works in galleries so that eventually 
the public will be able to enjoy more art than otherwise possible. And I think there's another major reason why this is okay. Simply by preserving a large number of important works of art, the public is benefited in the long run for generations to come. And you know, Max, this is information museum trustees often need to hear. It's true, Jim. And I think there's another point I would make, which helps some trustees that I've had to talk to about this over the years, drawing an analogy with a major public library. If we were to say, you know what, we could save a lot of space by getting rid of all the books that haven't been checked out in the last five years. (laughs) (laughs) And the library could shrink and only the books that are in constant circulation and demand would be the ones kept in the collection. That's the analogy for me. A library is a library of consequence because it has a comprehensive collection. And the same is true of an encyclopedic museum. Indeed, that's a good analogy, Max. Well, I did once speak to the American Library Association, and when I was preparing the talk, it came to my mind to talk about that. So speaking of new trustees, they arrive at museums not knowing about these guardrails of selling art off the walls or out of the storerooms. What do you think is the best way of bringing them into an awareness of the many landmines that deaccessioning can have? One role of a museum director is to inform the trustees regarding professional standards. And a great tool for that is the document we've been talking about, professional practices in art museums. I know some museum boards have adopted it as institutional policy. Mine did. But whether or not that is done, I can trust that we agree that the document should be in the hands of all those responsible for the museum, staff members and trustees alike. So bearing in mind that there are a lot of institutions today that are looking at selling or actively selling works from their collection, what are some of the risks of embarking on a large-scale deaccessioning program? The primary risk, it seems to me, is depriving the public and certainly depriving future generations of important art. That's no small issue. We can't learn from, we can't enjoy what we cannot see. Once a work of art moves into the private sector, there's no reason to assume it will be well protected. If it's true that 80 to 90% of museum acquisitions remain gifts and bequests rather than purchases, doesn't it create a disincentive for future donors if museums start selling art willy-nilly off the walls? It certainly does, Max. I have certainly personally encountered, as I'm sure you have, that reluctance on the part of potential donors. Yeah, I think it's led to the flowering of private museums. It's been a factor in institutions being grown up that are in the complete control of collectors rather than was the past practice of turning them over to a local or regional museum. You're right about that. And it's also led to the sale by potential donors of works that would have otherwise entered collections and been available to the public. The pandemic ushered in what's been called a relaxation of standards. What are your views on what that has made possible? The picture's confusing, Max. We have no idea how many museums are contemplating sales while this standard is in hiatus. We know what the AMD's current resolution says, but some actions announced recently by museums certainly seem to go beyond what was intended by that resolution. The picture is cloudy, 
we need to keep watching the news, I think. And we certainly need to listen to what the AAMD says next. Museums have obligations. They clearly have obligations to their current public, of course. They also have obligations to history as it is written, as it's preserved, as it's interpreted. It should be clear that they have an obligation to the future for the preservation of our cultural patrimony. And on top of that, we should never forget the pleasure, the aesthetic pleasure people privately, individually take in the art museums preserve. Art is for delectation, someone says. That is not all art is for, but we should never forget its glories. Let's remember that the relaxation was listed in April by AMD as having a two-year window. So I'm wondering if people are going to forget that. In other words, how do we put the toothpaste back in the tube in now one year and eight months or whatever it is? Well, I have to say first that I'm retired, as I have been for nine years, and I don't feel sufficiently close to the profession to guess the atmosphere that is likely to exist in the spring of 2022 when this resolution expires. But I can easily imagine that there will be a strong effort to leave the toothpaste where it now lies. <laughs> it will be up to the membership of the AAMD for sure, and will show the commitment of the AAMD to refill the tube, a difficult trick, I imagine. Extending your metaphor, Max, uh, we will see if the AAMD puts its teeth back into the standard. We have to think that Museums may well develop a taste for funds derived from sales. It will be fascinating to see what happens in 2022 and beyond. What do you think? Well, I think we have to return to a date in history that we both know well, and that was in the early 1990s when you and a variety of other directors went to the Financial Accounting Standards Board to talk about the big challenge that led, in fact, to the policies that we've been talking about today. And that was to get the collection off the museum's balance sheet in order that museums would not have to have an annual fair market value appraisal of the value of each work of art in the collection. Can you take us back to that time and to the discussions that unfolded? It was a complex time, a complex issue, Max, but you fingered what seems a great threat that may be hidden to museums right now if they are not careful about the use of funds from disposal. The threat is that the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, will repeat its previous attempts to require that the presumed monetary value of museums' collections be carried as an asset on museum balance sheets. As you said, that is one possible result of the monetization of collections. The FASB, and even before that, the AICPA, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, proposed that collections are financial assets. It used as evidence the sale of works of art from collections. It was with great difficulty in the 1970s and again in the 1980s that we beat back that notion, that it never became an accounting requirement. I was on the AAM's task force in the 1980s that argued with the FASB for about two years. We finally succeeded, perhaps for two reasons. One, perhaps the most important, is we agreed to reinforce in writing and to enforce the professional standards you and I have been discussing. The other reason was that Douglas Dillon stood before the FASB 
the board itself and dramatically announced that the Metropolitan would take a qualified audit if the FASB persisted in putting its proposed rule in place. But it was a tough slog. Recently, because of the AAM standards, the FASB agreed that funds from collection sales can be used also for direct care of collections. That was good news for some, and it may have given some impetus to the AMD's current stance. But it's not difficult, and this is a word, to imagine that a FASB member or a FASB staff member looking through the media at the current sales and understanding the fungibility of money could decide that direct care means just moving money around. And then they might well propose, once again in a few years, a requirement for capitalization of collections. That is a fraught requirement that very few museums would want to see. And the battle against it would be more difficult the next time. Correct. And what would it entail? In other words, would it entail, as was surmised, that every object in the collection has to have a current fair market value appraisal to be in compliance with FASB regulations. There was a huge debate about that in the 80s at the FASB. We made various trips to the FASB in Connecticut and covered a raft of issues related to the potential requirement for capitalization. And one was, of course, how to value the individual objects in the collection. The notion of an enormously expensive appraisal of collections was chilling to museums for sure. And we finally convinced the FASB staff that it was simply an impossibility. So at that time, the staff proposed that the total value of the collection be the total value given to each individual object at the time it entered the collection. Well, you can imagine with collections dating back into the 19th century, how accurate the total valuation would be. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Even more ridiculous, Jim, would be that if obligated once again to put art on the balance sheet, the annual reports of museums would be the equivalent of shopping lists for trustees, for the press, for others to say, let's not talk about art in the terms that are more complicated, interpretation and understanding of artists' intention. Let's talk about the thing that people are really interested in. What's it worth? And it would crowd out almost any other topic around how we value works of art. Indeed, it's a great danger. You put your finger right on it. Capitalization of collections will make museums look extremely wealthy to donors who don't bother to look beyond the bottom line. So it may well have a squelching effect on donors who would give operating funds as well as works of art. Well, Jim, we've gone through key issues that are facing museums as they think about deaccessioning, and I hope bringing up to speed some who are witnesses to this without as much depth. Your background has really helped shore up the history of this, the basis on which museums have operated up until April of this year, and it's been fantastic to have you called to witness on the stand, sir. <laughs> It's been a pleasure, Max. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to recall important things. More than recall, you've provided a roadmap for all of us, and I want to thank you so much for making time today. You're welcome. We've been speaking today with James Duff, Director Emeritus of the Brandywine River Museum. 
Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.